Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. the Lord reads, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Romans 9, 1 through 6a. This is the word of God. Keith Wright once wrote, lost people matter to God, and so they must matter to us. So while you guys have your Bibles out, please just turn with me really quick a little bit further to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to draw your attention to verse 18. First Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18, Paul writes, For the word of God, for, excuse me, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I don't know if you're aware or not, but a a chapel worship service at Asbury University has gained international attention because um, this service began on February the 8th and has continued 24 hours a day until still this morning. In fact, I think it's still going. And there have been thousands of people who actually have attended this service on this very small college campus. And the movement seems to be growing. And this event has featured ongoing music and uh, singing and prayer and testimonies and brief messages of hope by various people, including staff members and uh, seminarians. And it seems to be a a spontaneous um, student-led movement. And some people are calling this worship service a move of God, and some are even using words like awakening and revival. Um, And and I actually have been following this since it began. For some reason, it just popped up on my my Twitter feed, and uh, and I've watched a number of videos. I've listened to a number of people talk about uh, what's going on there. I've actually listened to a lot of people who've actually been there who've attended the service, and I've read a number of articles and posts um, from, from people with differing perspectives of what's going on there, and, and, and the opinions of what's happening there, as you might imagine, really kind of run the whole spectrum, right? On the one hand, you have those who would say, who are very negative and very pessimistic, and they would say, there's no way that this is a move of God, Right? And, and the reason for that is because they have, you know, all their, you know, theological reasons why it can't possibly be. In fact, I even heard one man say that it can't be a revival because they're not King James only. 
I'm like, I'm like, okay, whatever. On the other hand, though, you have the other extreme where people are just absolutely convinced that this is a revival, it's awakening, it is, it is a move of the Holy Spirit, and they are offended by anyone who asks questions about what's happening uh, there. They have, I've actually heard somebody say that, you know, that, that you're just trying to put God in a box. You just have to just believe. And anyone who says that it isn't a move of God, then you don't really love God, you know, and you don't really love other people. Right? And so you have these extreme perspectives, but then you have everybody else, which kind of lands somewhere in between. With that being said, I, I agree with many of the people that I know and respect, many pastors and theologians I know and respect. Um, we are all very hopeful. We are hope-filled because there seems to be something happening. And, right? and, and we, we hope that this is, in fact, a move of God, and we hope that this turns into a national revival and that many, many, many people in our country come to faith. But we also are reserving judgment until later so that we can see the fruit of what's happening. Because the truth is, this may, in fact, just be an emotional gathering of people feeding off of one another, or it certainly could be a move of God where it's actually going to go somewhere and and really produce some, some fruit. It's for, for me, it is just too early to, to judge. And as we wait, we, we watch and, and we hope. But what we've seen, there's a number of things that give us great hope, but there's also some things that give us pause and concern. Among the things that give us hope is the fact that there are true believers who are gathering together and they're singing and praising God together. They're coming together and they're praying to God as a unified body. People of different denominations um, are having fellowship and worship with one another in unity in their common faith in Christ. That is a good thing. That is something to be hopeful for. In fact, that's one of the things that we work for in our own community is, is unity amongst true believers. People also are encouraging each other and they're praying for one another. And these, again, are all good things and, and, and they're signs for us to have hope. But then there are some things that give us concern. Right? For instance, there are a few infamous false teachers that have made their way that are there in the crowds, and they're using this as an opportunity to legitimize their own ministries. And I'm not talking about just fringe people. I'm talking about there's, there's an abusive false teacher who, who claims to be somebody who is specially anointed by God, who is known for his healing ministry by kicking people in the face with his combat boots. Okay? Right? This is one of the characters that's there. That's, that's concerning, right? Uh, another thing that's concerning, it seems to be the lack of the proclamation of the gospel. There are people who are giving lots of encouraging messages and there's lots of testimonies about personal things that they've experienced, but there's a distinct lack of, of the proclamation of, of the gospel of Christ. Now, again, I have many of my own thoughts, and I plan to, to address this with our congregation as we go along, but I believe it's still too early for me to just say, this is what's happening, or this is, you know, again, I, I'm hopeful, I'm desiring. We've been praying for revival in this church for years, right? We have been praying for a national revival for years, so I'm hopeful for that, right? But the truth is, if this is a move of God, right, and if this is truly revival, what we will see, after the music is over, what we will see is people coming to a real saving faith in Christ that who were not saved before. And we will see people who, who are 
in sin, repenting of their sins. That's classically what you see with revival. That's what you read in the Bible. And we will see true believers then committing themselves to going out into the world and living and following Christ by sharing the hope of Jesus with people and loving their neighbors. We will see that. That'll be some of the fruit that we will see. If this is truly revival, it won't be remembered simply for the emotions that people felt during a worship service. It'll be remembered by the lives that have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. And those who didn't know Christ will know him, and those who do know him will actively begin to follow him. So that is the fruit that I'm personally looking for. And, and with that, again, I have some concerns because what I've heard from some people that I trust, people that I know personally that, that have been there, and, and I don't mean just for a little bit, but they've been there for like for 16 hours at, at a time. Uh, they say that the only gospel message that they've heard to this point is the phrase, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I mean, and I hope that they're wrong, but, but, but that is the message that's being called the gospel by, by the people that are there. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that does sound wonderful, right? And it does sound spiritual. And it does have a, a kernel of truth because, because the gospel is certainly rooted in the love of Christ, but this expression that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is not the gospel. It's not. I can stand up here and even tell you my personal testimony and I can cry big fat tears when I tell you my testimony and make you cry big fat tears as well. But my story is not the gospel. What you, will find, what you need to realize is this, this, this expression, this modern expression, by the way, that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you will not find that message in the Scriptures. You will not read anywhere that the apostles went to a group of people and said that to the people that they're ministering to and evangelizing. I mean, we've spent 49 weeks in the book of Romans to this point pouring over this letter and Paul explains in detail exactly what the gospel is. In fact, Romans, if you remember, is the most complete exposition of the gospel. And I have to tell you, in 49 weeks together, going through Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8, we didn't read anything at all in this text that resembles that. We didn't read anything that resembles Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the reason why we didn't read it is because it's not the gospel. Right. As we've studied this very topic in, in this series, right, titled The Power of the Gospel, we know for certain what the gospel is because Paul has deliberately taken the time to explain what it is. And it begins, first of all, with the bad news of man's condition and the wrath of God that abides on him because of sin. Paul spent the better part of three chapters deliberately explaining that all of mankind is covered in sin and is helpless on his own to save himself. And what we need to realize is, is the bad news is necessary for us to understand. Otherwise, the good news will not make any sense to anyone because you won't look to Christ to be saved if you don't know that you need to be saved. As we've said before, you will not take the medicine unless you understand the diagnosis. And so it begins with the bad news. Of what, you know, but then Paul then turns the corner and explains the good news. What is the reason for us to have hope? And the good news is what Christ has done for us to save us from that sin and the wrath of God because of sin. 
It is the truth that Jesus came into the world to live for our righteousness and then to die for our sins. And he was resurrected, proving that those who trust in him are forgiven and are safe in his hands. And the promise of the gospel isn't, you know, if you will, isn't that you're going to have somehow a pain-free, problem-free life here and now. That's not the promise of the gospel. But rather, it is if you put your hope in Christ and in him alone, you were justified, you were declared righteous, and you were saved permanently from your sins, from, from the penalty of your sin, ultimately from the power of your sin, and one day from the presence of sin, and you were saved from the wrath of God. And, and this salvation is a gift of God's grace that is received by faith apart from anything we can do by our own works. That's the gospel that Paul has proclaimed and, and exclaimed in Romans. Not some simple sentimental platitude that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, it is true. I want you to hear me. Like, I'm not, I'm not just being cynical here. Jesus does love you, and God certainly has a plan for your life. But it might not be wonderful to you here and now. Because it may involve great difficulty and great suffering. Jesus said that in this world you will have trouble. Paul said, right, that we are children of God, provided we suffer with Christ. Remember, God works all things out. That's the promise. God works all things out for our good. But it doesn't mean that all the things that we go through in this life are good and pleasant. But they all will shape us and transform us for our ultimate good. And so the expression like that is not the gospel. Well, if it's not the gospel, then why then do so many people think that it is? And why is it so popular today? Well, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The gospel is folly to those who don't believe it. It is foolishness to those who, who, who won't trust in Christ. It is literally absurd to those who are not in, in Christ. In fact, the gospel in our world is offensive to people. It offends people's sensibilities. It offends their sense of how things are. It offends their worldview. It offends their desires. It offends even their own identities. And the reason for that is because the gospel confronts people. It confronts people where they are. The gospel declares who God is and what he requires. And it shows how we all, every one of us, have fallen short. That's why we say that the law of God is a mirror, right? It's not some, a list of things that we can do. It's a mirror that reveals to us how we have fallen short. The gospel confronts us in our sin. It exposes how hard our hearts have been. It exposes who we really are. It reveals to us what we really need. The gospel pierces our hardened hearts. It, it pricks our consciences. Right? In, in a very real sense, it, it wounds us. Right? The word of God is described as a, as a sharp, two-edged sword. A sword that cuts to the quick, right? And that's why, by the way, people push back from it. That's why people find it offensive. The same way that people recoil from a needle that administers life-saving medication. How many of you don't like needles? Right? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. In the same way that people recoil from a needle that gives life-saving medication, people recoil from the gospel because... When you're confronted with who you are, it has a tendency to hurt. 
That's the reality. And it's because of that that some, that some people who legitimately love other people and who desire to see other people saved, that they take it upon themselves to try to soften the blow of the gospel. They try to blunt the blade, so to speak. They try to sand off the, the rough edges. They, they try to, to take the sharp points of the gospel and kind of, kind of smooth them over. They try to take the gospel and make it less painful, not realizing that sometimes the pain is part of the, the healing process. They take the message of God that, is, that He has given about salvation and redemption and they excise the parts that are hard to take and they trim off the bits that might offend someone and they end up presenting a message that sounds really wonderful and loving but has no ability to save. And I admit personally, I've done this in my own life. I've done this with, with a real sincere desire to see people come to faith. I understand this comes from a sincere heart. People really want others to come to faith in Christ. They desperately want the people, especially they know and love to be saved. That is a good desire. That is a good thing. We all should want that. The problem is, is that out of that motivation and out of the experience of us seeing people become offended by the gospel and out of the experience from rejection that we get sometimes, that people will then try to take God, that they will try to play God themselves by reshaping and redefining and changing the gospel message, forgetting the truth that the power of God to save isn't us. It's not me and you. The power of God to save is the gospel, as Paul has said. Now, why then do I bring all this up at the beginning of Romans chapter 9? Because we're now at a place in the letter in Romans 9 where Paul has, after masterfully presenting his argument of what the gospel is and the assurance that the gospel gives us, Paul now is at a, at a place where he's having to deal with a very difficult objection to the gospel. You see, Paul has made it clear that the gospel that he preaches is not something that's new. It's not novel. Right? It's, it's not something that he invented. It wasn't something invented by some fishermen guys who were following around this guy named Jesus. It is a truth that is revealed in the Old Testament, a truth that's revealed in the law and the prophets. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul declares very clearly, the gospel that he preaches was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Even Jesus said that the scriptures all were about who? About him. But the problem that Paul now faces is this question. If, if the gospel that he preaches is in fact revealed in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, then why do so many Jewish people reject the gospel at the time? Why are so many Jewish people offended by this teaching of the gospel? It's a really big issue for him, right? If, if what Paul is saying is true, then why do so many people who were the ones given the scriptures and taught the scriptures since they were little bitty kids, why are they obstinately rejecting the gospel if it actually is proclaimed in the Old Testament? Was Paul wrong about the gospel? Or has the word of God failed to bring about the redemption that is the promise that is promised to those who, who are supposed to be God's people? 
If the gospel is true, then, then has God's word failed? That's the question that Paul is really looking to answer in the next several chapters. This is the issue that he faces that he'll address in chapters 9 through 11. Has the word of God failed? And if, and if not, then why have so many of the Jews rejected it? Now, the truth is Romans chapter 1 through 8 you know, Paul explains in detail what the gospel is, the blessings the gospel bestows on those who believe. He talks about how the gospel works and explains how the gospel sets us free and how the gospel preserves us and keeps us safe until the end. Chapters 1 through 8 are, in effect, a complete argument, a complete unit of thought. Right? It is... It is a masterwork of what the gospel is. And if you learn chapters 1 through 8 and you master chapters 1 through 8, you really will have a super good handle on the gospel truth. If you understand Romans 1 through 8, then you're going to have a robust understanding of what the gospel is. And it's because of this that some have said that, that you can take Romans 8 and just jump right to chapter 12 and skip over 9 through 11. In fact, there's some who think that some scholars think that 9 through 11 is just a part that's been inserted that was actually an older uh, piece of writing by Paul. Even the pulpit commentary says of Romans 9 through 11 that this section is not necessary for the main argument of the epistle. All right, and that, that, that chapters 12, that, that 8 should go right to 12, and that these intervening parts really have no immediate connection or to the, the preceding or the succeeding context. In other words, what, what some people believe is that 9 through 11 is just really kind of out of place. I actually completely, wholeheartedly disagree with that, right? In fact, I, I agree with John Calvin who writes that in this chapter, Paul begins to remove the offenses which might have diverted the minds of men from Christ for the Jews for whom he was appointed according to the covenant of the law, not only rejected him, but regarded him with contempt and for the most part, hated him. In other words, Paul, in this new section, has to deal with these important objections to the gospel. Right? Calvin further writes, Hence, there are two things that seem to follow. Either that there was no truth in the divine promise, the word of God has failed, right? or that Jesus, whom Paul preached, is not the Lord's anointed especially the one promised to the Jews. In other words, what, Paul is, what, he's saying, what Calvin is saying is if Paul... What he taught in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 8, is true. And if the Old, wet, Old Testament bore witness to that, then why are so many Jews rejecting this? Is, is Jesus simply a false Messiah? Or has the Word of God failed? Well, if Jesus is a false Messiah, then there's no reason to hope in Him. Right? Right? But if the Word of God has failed, then there's no hope for anyone neither Jew or Gentile. And so the question of why so many Jews are, again, who were set apart as a nation by God, they have rejected the gospel, is an important objection that Paul must answer, and he does so in the next three chapters. And, he, and by doing so, by the way, he's going to make clear who it is that God's people really are, his elect, and how God is sovereign over everything, including salvation, and how God is mighty to save all of those whom he has purposed to save, both Jew and Gentile. But for our purpose today, Paul begins to help us to see that it is not loving. I want you to hear me. Paul's going to help us to see that it's not loving to soften the blow of the gospel, even though it might feel like it. 
It's not loving to soften the blow of the gospel, but rather we need to continually and patiently and lovingly proclaim it. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 1 at first. And Paul writes, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The very first thing I want you to notice is how Paul is, is not just saying, I'm not lying. He is emphatic that he's telling the truth. Notice also the depth of his emotions that he's expressing related to telling the truth. Right? There is a distinct change in the tone of this letter to this point. Everything else has been building off of each other. He concludes with his glorious exposition about the hope we have in Christ, and now he starts to pour out his personal heart. In one verse, Paul repeats himself three times, essentially, with respect to being honest. He makes it clear, I am emphatically telling the truth. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. And then he says, and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He is saying that I have two witnesses to the truthfulness that I I am bearing, and that is Christ and the Holy Spirit himself. Paul is emphatic about the truthfulness, about how he feels. And this, this emphasis ought to draw our attention to what Paul expresses about how he feels. And what he feels, when you look at it in context, is deep emotional pain. I want you to notice He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And the thing that we need to realize is that in English, we can say things and just kind of gloss things over. But the vocabulary that he uses here in Greek is very expressive. The word sorrow that he uses in Greek is actually related to this idea of someone beating their own chest. That's what the word actually literally means. It means to beat your own chest. It is the idea that he's experiencing so much intense emotional pain, such intense sorrow that he's moved physically to beat on his own chest. And I think that if you've lived just a little time in this world, that you understand that kind of sorrow. That we've all been there. We've all experienced deep emotional pain where physically we just feel like just, you know, beating on ourselves. And, and, and the word anguish also here is similar because it's rooted in the idea of someone beating on their own thigh. Again, it expresses an emotional turmoil so overwhelming that a person literally has to let out that emotion by hitting themselves in the legs. And again, right? This is an experience of anguish I think that many of us have faced. Deep, painful, emotional turmoil that results in a physical expression. I think we've all I think we've all been there at least once, right? Where you just are so consumed with sorrow and, and turmoil that you could just slap yourself in the head or punch holes in the wall or just, you know, or just beat yourself in the chest. This, that's, that's the language that Paul's using here. It's not saying, I was kind of sad, right? It, the depth of Paul's emotions are very deep. This is not some passing sadness or this occasional kind of like bluesy, melancholy feeling. This is a deep and painful and remorseful emotion. Paul in this is in real emotional turmoil. And, and he says, I tell you the truth, that this is how I feel. Again, he explains the reason for these emotions. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul reveals the reason for his sorrow is because so many people who were related to him ethnically, who were Jewish, have rejected the gospel and are lost. That's the root of his sorrow. In fact, in, in chapter 10, Paul will say, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, is that they may be saved. Why? Because they're lost. Paul is saying that he, they're not saved and his heart is torn apart over it. And notice he calls them Israelites and says that they are his brethren according to the flesh. This is, this is an important distinction for us because, because they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. That is something completely different. They are not part of God's family. They are his extended ethnic family. They're biologically related to him because they're Jews. And Paul affirms that they are the descendants of the people that God had set apart for himself as a nation. And they are people who received and grew up with the blessings that God bestowed on that nation, including the law, the same law that Paul says reveals the gospel. These people are near and dear to his heart. These people are people that he cares about. These are people that he grew up identifying with and still, in some sense, identifies with. These are, in a very real sense, his family. Right? These are people that he was taught that they were set apart by God for a specific reason. These are people he has great love for. It. And to make matters worse, all of these people not only rejected Christ, but they've rejected him. They hate Paul. They have accused him of abandoning his people. They've accused him of being a traitor. They've accused him of having a Gentile go with him into the temple. They have accused him of blasphemy. They have, they, have, they have accused him of spurning the name of God, probably the most hateful thing you can say to a Jewish person. Remember in Acts, Paul was arrested and rescued by Roman soldiers to save him from the Jews who were trying to kill him. He's heartbroken over this because they see him as the enemy, which reminds us of the truth that we need to just simply come to terms with and be at peace with. And that is when you speak the truth, the truth at times is going to offend some people. Can we just agree on that? Right? And that, that when you speak the truth, there are going to be times people are going to be offended. Even people that you love, by the way. Even people that you care about. Even people that you are telling the truth as lovingly as you possibly can. When you speak the truth, you run the risk of people around you rejecting you. And you run the risk of them thinking of you as the enemy. When you speak the truth, especially about something that someone finds offensive, you run the risk of them rejecting you. This right here, by the way, is why so many people reduce the gospel down to Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because that's really, really soft and cuddly, right? It doesn't, that doesn't offend anyone. That does not convict anyone. That doesn't, you don't run the risk of, of someone not liking you because of that kind of message. That kind of message is popular because, because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to offend anyone. And, and we don't want to be rejected. And 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 worse, we reason, if we 
if, 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 if they reject me, then they're never going to hear the gospel or see the love of Christ. If I hurt their feelings by telling them the truth, then they're going to hate Jesus because of me, and that means they'll never be saved. Because if I don't reach them for Christ, then no one will. You see, we oftentimes forget that we ourselves are not the power of God to save anyone. Our ability to keep from upsetting people with the truth is not the power of God to save. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not our ability to protect people's feelings. In fact, our reluctance to tell people the truth oftentimes is what's getting in the way. Maybe our love for other people is greater than our love for God and the truth. But brothers and sisters, hear me. There's only one way that people will be saved, and that is to hear and believe the gospel. There's only one way. We must tell people the unadulterated truth of the gospel. We must be willing for them to reject us. Now hear me, because people hear me say that and they think, oh, you're just saying that it's okay to be a jerk. That's not what I'm saying. I, I mean, I don't know how people can jump ship from one side to the next, but let me be clear. Right? I'm not saying that we need to be arrogant. In fact, we should never be. We have no cause to be arrogant. I'm not saying we need to be jerks about it. I'm not saying that we need to purposely hurt people's feelings. We ought not to hurt people's feelings because people have certainly done that. Some people forget that we're to speak the truth in love, always in love. But what I'm saying is we must be willing to bear witness to the truth that those who, who are not in Christ are, are lost. We must be willing to declare the bad news of our condition as well as the good news of Christ. And that, that is the message that Paul has been proclaiming. And that is the reason why his own countrymen have rejected him and sought to take his life. Paul is not ashamed to declare the truth of the gospel. And those that, so to the point that those who were, were lost despise him. In fact, notice what Paul says. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. In other words, I wish I could trade places with them. Because the truth is, the Jews who reject Christ are accursed and anathema. They are cut off from Christ. Paul is saying that they are lost, and I wish desperately that I could trade places so they could be saved. Again, right, Paul will say in, in chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer is for is to God is for them that they may be saved. And this again speaks to us. Because it reveals our own hearts. We desperately want those that we love to be saved, right? We want our families and our friends and our neighbors to come to Christ. We can't bear the thought of someone suffering for eternity. We want them to repent and believe and live, right? Not because we want to control them. It's funny, every time I share the gospel with someone there, you just, you're just religious and you just want to control everybody's life. You have no idea. I have no desire to control your life. It's not we were trying to control their lives. It's not that we're trying to get them to join our little religious club, right? We want them to be saved from their sin and the wrath of God. We want them to believe and live. And we identify with Paul's sentiment that we wish that we could trade places with them, right? Because we've all experienced that, especially if you're a parent. If you're a parent, you have said in your own words, I wish I could trade places with my kids especially when, when they're in pain, 
right? Especially when your kids are sick, right? And, and you, can't, you can't help them. You can't do anything for them. You just watch them suffer. And you're like, I just wish I could trade places with you. When you see your kids going through hard times, you wish, I, just, I wish I could just trade places with you so I could go through it and so you wouldn't have to. We all wish that we could trade places, even though it's impossible. But notice this desire to trade places doesn't change Paul's message. It doesn't change the fact that those who are in Christ, who are not in Christ, are cut off from God. Those who are not in Christ are anathema, as, as the Greek says. They are liable to judgment and the wrath of God, and, and that wrath still hangs over their heads. Paul's love for these people and desire for them to be saved even to the point of wishing to trade places with him, doesn't cause him to change the message that he's proclaiming, though. His love and his emotions and his compassion for these people doesn't force him to change the message. In fact, in spite of all that he has gone through and the rejection that he has faced and all the hostility that's hurled at him by these Jewish people, his own Jewish people, he still spends eight chapters expressing clearly what the gospel message is to a church that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul's love for his people forces him to speak the truth and not soften it and make it more palatable. The second thing I think we need to come to grips with is the truth that those who reject Christ are accursed and cut off. And that includes devout Jews and, and I mention this because there is a weird theology that has kind of grown up in the 19th and 20th century that, that seems to believe that those who are Jewish today are somehow given a pass simply because they're Jewish. In fact, a very famous televangelist in Houston, Texas, teaches that Christians today should not evangelize Jewish people. Because he says the gospel is for Gentiles and not the Jews. That the Gentiles, Christians, are saved by the gospel and the Jews are saved by the law and their special status before God. <laughs> and it will surprise you how many people actually who call themselves Christians believe that. That somehow that people who are devout Jewish people and are sincere in their faith, that, they, that, that, that they're not really under God's wrath simply because of their genetics even though that they reject the gospel. But, but hear me, brothers and sisters, they're denying the, the Christ and Messiah who came to save them. And, and just like the Jews in the first century, they're denying the gospel and they're spitting upon the sacrifice of Christ and they're spurning His atoning blood and they're rejecting the very grace that God is holding out to them. They're just as guilty as the atheist who refuses to believe in God. In fact, that's the case that Paul was making in Romans chapter 1 through 3, is that all of mankind, religious and unreligious, are on equal ground. All of mankind is unrighteous and needs the grace of God to be saved. And so Paul says he wishes he could trade places with his Jewish brothers. And the third thing I want you to notice here is that Paul still has a deep love and affection for those who have rejected Christ and those who have rejected him personally. This gives us a lot to think about. First of all, notice that he is not bitter towards those who reject him and consider him an enemy. Paul 
does not allow their hatred of him to make him bitter toward them. I think this is an important lesson for us because it's really easy. It is really easy. I'm going to testify to this, all right? It is really easy to reject those who reject us, right? It is really easy to hate those who hate us or at least not like them very much, right? It's easy to write people off because they don't like us or they've hurt us or they've said bad things about us or they have spurned us or said nasty things on Facebook about us. By the way, if I were you, I would just avoid all that drama and just post pictures of your kids and Bible verses, right? Yeah. It's easy for us to give up on people because they've rejected us or impugned us or made fun of us. It's easy to become bitter towards those who are hostile to us. I want to testify that that is in my own nature still today. It's easy. But remember the words of Jesus himself. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I'll say that again. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If there's anything that convicts you today, that ought to be the thing that convicts you. Told you the truth hurts, right? Jesus says we're to love those who hate us. Talk about an idea that really doesn't want to fit in here, right? And and Paul actually lives this out right in front of us, and he has deep compassion for the people that have rejected him and rejected Christ and the gospel that he loves so much. He says, I wish I just could trade places with them so they could be saved. I would, so that I could be accursed and they could be saved. The second thing we need to take to heart is the fact that Paul is emotionally troubled by the fact that there are people who are lost. That he is emotionally bothered by the fact there are people that are lost. Paul is emotionally concerned for the eternity of those who are not in Christ. He feels sorrow and anguish for them. He is emotionally motivated to continue to bear witness to them, even though they don't like him. In fact, in chapter 1, he said that he's obligated to all men to preach the gospel. This is how it ought to be for all of us. If you understand the gospel and you understand what awaits those who reject Christ, then you ought, you know, your heart ought to break for the lost. Your heart ought to be in anguish for them. Again, it brings us back to the, to the right understanding of the true gospel because without Christ, there is no good news. Do you understand that? Without Christ, there is no good news. There's only the bad news, the specter of judgment. And, I, and, and I've had interactions with atheists a lot recently. They've just been kind of just showing up in my life. And every single one of them wants to just tell me and, about how good they are and how much good they do. But it doesn't take very long for them to actually admit that, you know what, I actually have done a lot of really bad stuff too. Without Christ, there's only judgment. Without Christ, there's the only, we ha- only thing we have is the wages of sin. Without Christ, there's only God's wrath. There's only an eternity of suffering and being separated from God's love and grace. That is all that awaits those who are not in Christ. And I know that that's offensive to some, and I know that's not what people want to hear, but it is still the truth. And it is universal to all of humanity. Everyone who's not in Christ 
cannot escape this. No one gets a free pass because they're really lovable and funny. Right? We seem to put a, a great prize on people who make us laugh, right? That we just seem to really just relate to and, and, and just think highly of those people who, who, who make us feel better and make us giggle. Right? No one is going to get a free pass because they're funny and lovable. No one is going to get a free pass or, or sidestep into heaven because they're genuine and do a lot of good things for other people. No one escapes the wrath of God because, because they have a wonderful personality. Remember, Paul declared from the very beginning of this letter, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then in chapter 2, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God judges, God's righteous judgment, it will be revealed. And even Jesus himself, everybody wants to say, oh, I don't like to listen to Paul. I want to listen to Jesus. Well, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is only one destiny for those who are not in Christ. In church, I want you to hear me. This is the truth that we must understand and accept. There is no hope for those who are not in Christ, no matter how awesome their life has been here and now. And the truth that truth ought to break your heart like it does for Paul. And that truth ought to propel you forward to live on mission, sharing the hope of Christ with your neighbors and your friends. I'm not saying you have to be that obnoxious neighbor that stands in somebody's front yard with a sandwich board, you know, that says, repent you sinner, right? But it ought to cause us to want to build relationships with them so we can share the hope of Christ with them. This truth ought to make us more compassionate also, right? It ought to make us more loving. It ought to make us more gracious, like it did for Paul. If there's one thing that the church can grow in that will change the witness that we have of the rest of the world, is just how gracious we are to other people. Spoken from a guy who struggles to be gracious at times. It ought to make us more gracious. And, and again, listen to the words that he expresses about, about those who have hated him and mocked him and reviled him. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow to the point that I could beat my chest and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I could myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul knows what awaits them, and he knows the fate of those who reject Christ, and he's brokenhearted by it. Now, Paul understands that his wish to trade places is never going to be granted. He knows that. First of all, Paul knows, just like everyone else who trusts in Christ, everyone who puts their faith in Christ will not lose their adoption. <laughs> right? In fact, Paul, if you remember, he, he just said right before this, he said, what can separate us from the love of God? Who can separate us from the love of God? And the answer is no one. Right? But secondly, and most importantly, the thing that we need to realize is somebody already has traded places with them. That's the part that we forget. That's the part that other people forget. Somebody already has traded places with them. Someone has already endured the wrath of God. Someone has already lived a life that earned righteousness. Somebody has already atoned for sin, and that is Christ. 
Christ lived the perfect righteous life that we're all required to live, but failed to live. And Jesus kept the law that we all continue to break. And he kept the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep. And he earned in his humanity a complete, righteous, sinless standing before God. And then he went to the cross willingly on our behalf. And on the cross, all of our sins were placed on him. And in his body, he endured the full weight of God's wrath that we deserve and shed his blood to atone for our sins. He died in our place. That's what we call the substitutionary atonement. Christ is our substitute. And then after three days in the grave, he rose from the dead literally and physically, proving God's justice has been accomplished and that God's wrath against us has been satisfied. And the way back into fellowship with God has been now open. And the call is what? Simply believe and live. That those who put their faith and trust in Christ their places have been traded and they are saved. Those who trust in Jesus are washed clean of their sins and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so they can stand in front of God without fear. They're not saved by their works. They're not saved by being religious. They're not saved by trying really, really hard to obey a bunch of rules. They're saved by trusting Christ and His finished work on their behalf. They traded places with Him. Those who trust in Him are saved, and those who don't, aren't. And the truth is, if people reject Jesus' trading places, the one who traded places with them on the cross, how much more will they reject us or Paul trading places with them? Paul desires desperately for them to be saved, but Paul knows that He's not the author of their salvation. God is. But that still leaves us with a big question, right? How is it that people who then were considered God's people, who had the word of God, how do they miss the truth of the gospel? Well, Paul says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law the worship, the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. First thing I want you to notice is that Paul does affirm that, that Christ is not just some prophet from the desert, that he is God himself. Don't miss that. This is one more example of the scriptures making it clear that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Jesus is not some really noble guy who did some cool things. He is God incarnate. That's why Christmas is so special to us. God put himself into the world and came on a rescue mission to rescue us personally. And Paul praises him as such. But also notice that, he, that, that these people that Paul is in anguish for he had every spiritual advantage you could want. They were Israelites. They were born into a nation of, and an ethnicity that was set apart by God himself. They were a holy nation. Their whole identity was centered around God. They grew up with the law. They grew up belonging to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They grew up hearing and rehearsing and reciting this unique and privileged history. They were given the law and they were taught how to worship God in the temple. And Jesus, the Messiah, who, who, who was promised to them, 
right, came from them. They were looking forward to him. He was born in the line of David, of the line of Judah. Jesus was one of them. But so many of these people, in spite of all of these advantages, refuse to repent and believe the gospel. You see, the word of God didn't fail because none of these spiritual advantages actually will save a person and change their hearts. None of these spiritual advantages will make them righteous. Only Christ can make you righteous. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart because salvation is not the work of man and his ability to be religious. It's the work of God, and Paul will unpack that truth over the next few chapters. But what does this tell us about today? It tells us that our salvation has nothing to do with our nationality. We're not Christians because we're Americans. I just want to get that clear. I've heard some atheists say, well, you're just a Christian because you're born in America. That has nothing to do with it. It also has nothing to do with our genetics. It has nothing to do with our family history. It has nothing to do with our religious tradition. You see, we live at a time when many people think that they are right with God because they grew up in the church. How many times have you heard it? Oh, I grew up Catholic. I grew up Baptist. I grew up Methodist. doesn't mean anything. And there are many people who think that they're Christians because they grew up with parents who said they were Christians. That would have been me in my young adult life. I believed I was a Christian simply because my parents said we were Christians. And we went to church a couple of times in my life and I had a Bible in my room. But I had no idea at all about the gospel. And there were people who think that, that we're Christians because, because they're religious and zealous for their religion. I have good friends in this community who are devout members of their religious tradition, and they believe with all of their heart that they're God's children, even though what they believe about God and Christ and the Bible and eternity are completely heretical. What they believe is a false teaching from the pit of hell. They're completely unchristian, but because they are involved and committed, they sincerely think that their, their membership in this particular church has saved them. And there are people who think that they're saved because they go to church regularly. Right? Some people just think that that's what you do. You just Now understand, church attendance is important for your growth, but that doesn't make you saved. None of these things will save you. Your grandma praying for you when you was a kid will not save you. Now, grandmas, you should pray for your grandkids, and parents, you should pray for your children. But they still have to come to faith. Your parents making you go to Christian school will not save you. The only thing that will save you is if, for you to hear the gospel, and after hearing it, you believe the gospel and placing all of your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And it's by believing the gospel and trusting in God to bring you safely home. That is the faith that saves. And there are people all around us who think that they have been saved just because, just like these Jewish people, because they're depending on some external factor or activity to save them. There are people that believe that they're, they're saved because they keep the law. Some people believe that they're saved because they, they made some tearful confession when they were like five years old at BBS, at some time they, they can barely remember. Some people believe that they're saved because they grew up in a Christian home. Some people believe that they're saved because they're, again, because they're Americans. But all of these people, just like everyone else, still needs to hear the gospel. 
right? Not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They need to hear the truth about God and His righteousness, and they need to hear the truth that everyone, including including them, has fallen short, and unless they ch- and that something changes, they will experience the full weight of God's wrath. And then they need to hear the good, glorious news of Jesus Christ about what He's done, His life, His death, His resurrection, and they need to be called to repent and believe again and again and again. And here's the thing that we need to come to terms with. The truth will be offensive to some people, and some people will hear the truth and reject it, and maybe even reject us, but the gospel is still the power of God to save for those who believe. And for a person to believe, they need to hear. And for a person to hear, somebody must be faithful enough to share it, even if it means that we'll be rejected. And an important thing to remember is the gospel, again, is the power of God to save us, not us. We're not that power. We cannot make anyone believe and be saved. That's why I get frustrated to see people arguing on Facebook. You're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom, right? We cannot make anyone believe and be saved. Our job is actually much simpler than that. Our job is to sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change their hearts, and then never give up. That's our job. It's as simple as that. We are to sow the seed by telling people the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to love the people by letting them see that whether they believe it or not, we're going to love them, we're going to be there for them, we're going to help them, we're going to be in their lives. That, That them... Becoming Christians isn't what what causes us to love them. We love them because God loves them. And we need to love them with our actions and our words and our attitudes, and, and we need to serve them. We need to love people actively, even those that are hard to love. And then what we need to do is we need to pray for God to do the part that only God can do, and that is to change their hearts. And then most importantly is that we never, ever, 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 ever give up on them. Because you might share the gospel with someone a hundred times. It might be the hundred and first time they finally actually understand it and repent and believe. I know for me, in my own personal life, I heard the gospel many times. I've heard people talk about the death of Christ and the resurrection. I heard it. I could even recite it, but I didn't understand it. It wasn't until God changed my heart that I finally understood my sin and my need for Christ. So we need to do our part, even if they reject us, even if they hate us, even if they persecute us. We're to labor faithfully doing our part, knowing that God will do His. So let us then, armed with the knowledge of the gospel and understanding the truth that if God is for us, who could be against us? Let us go out into the world and shine the light of Jesus with all that we come in contact with. Let me pray for you.